Welcome to Coffee and Divination, a podcast about the arts of obtaining hidden knowledge in changing times. Join me, Joanna Farrar, to chat with experts from around the world on tarot, runes, geomancy, and the many ways divination can help us navigate and plan our paths ahead. So welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for being here tonight. My name is Joanna Farrar, and I am the host of Coffee and Divination, and it is my absolute pleasure to welcome John Michael Greer to Coffee and Divination today. And he is a well-known author writing in a variety of genres and topics, including ecology, politics, appropriate technology, oil depletion, druidry, divination, and magic in so many different forms. The number of books and the titles are too many for me to list here. If you're not familiar with his writings, you really should be at this point, and you should uh, take a look at his blog. He wrote for many years, starting in 2006, the Archdruid Report, which is now echosophia.net, and that is a um, blog that is followed by many, many people. I have had the pleasure of reading his writings for many years through that. And from 2003 to 2015, he was the Grand Archdruid of the Ancient Order of Druids in America. For all of those reasons, and so many more, I am honored to welcome John Michael Greer here tonight. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on. So one of my first questions, I'm not going to ask you to relate to all of us how you got started in the occult, because <laughs> I think we don't, we don't need to go that far back. But given that this is a podcast that primarily focuses on divination, I wanted to ask you what some of your first experiences with the arts of divination were. Were there people in your family that practiced it, like TV oh, Lord, reading? No. Or? no, 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 no. <laughs> uh, actually, it's going to come down to um, how I got involved in the occult, because that's how I okay. got involved in divination. Sure. Um, it's quite simple. I grew up in the South Seattle suburbs in the late 60s and early 70s. Um, think of your generic plastic suburb, okay? All the nice, you know, the, everything nicely groomed, everything 100% plastic, boring as all get out. If you're you know, an intelligent bookish child growing up in this kind of environment, being told, hey, this is wonderful, this is all there is to life, it was kind of a hellscape. And so I was interested in anything that was less two-dimensional than the world that was being presented to me by the media and the schools and my parents and so on and so forth. Um, so, you know, I was, into, I was into werewolf trivia. I was into all kinds of unexplained phenomena. You name it, I was interested in it. But bit by bit, I started noticing that there was this, this thing, this, this occultism, magic, divination. There was a cluster of things off there in the middle distance that wasn't just a matter of, wow, read this cool thing about werewolves or what have you. It's actually something you did. And so one thing led to another. Eventually, I was able to find some books. This was in the in the middle phases of the great paperback boom of the 1970s when you can get paperbacks on anything in, in supermarket you know, book racks. And so I, I launched into my, my study of occultism. And one of the things I encountered, actually two of the things I encountered first were tarot on the one hand and geomancy on the other. Um, to, well, of course, tarot is extremely famous these days. Most people know what a tarot deck is. Geomancy, much less so, but it so happened that one of the books that I picked up earliest as, as a textbook of occultism was one of the, one of the two authors was a, one of the people involved in helping to revive geomancy. And so I was going, wow, this is cool. So I piled into it. And of course, I did so very much on my own 
without um, any particular help from teachers or anything. I was, you know, again, a bookish kind of shy. They didn't have the term Asperger's syndrome in those days, but that's what it was. And so, um, so I was doing this entirely on my own. I was collecting books and this kind of stuff. And quite a few years passed before I finally started meeting other people who were involved in this kind of thing. Um, in case anyone wonders, Mary Kay Greer and me, were, we may be distant cousins. An enormous number of people, when I first got into print, thought that I was like Mary Kay Greer's son or her boyfriend or something like that. <laughs> she is a marvelous person, but um, we're not related. At least not closely enough that you would you would know about that. That's not <laughs> yeah, exactly. We we just, we just we call each other cousin <laughs> because we are probably descended from the same uh, subset of the same Scottish clan on our paternal sides. But that's about you know mm-hmm. that's about it. But yeah, so basically, I got into divination because I picked up some books that had to do with with magic and occultism, and there it was. And I said, okay, well, that sounds cool. And I proceeded to charge in charge into the whole subject with with my you you know the typical eleven year old gullibility, but I was in, you know I was enthusiastic I was interested I made my first tarot deck um, hand drawn horribly ugly I'm not a very good artist um, on index cards. Wow, that's that's and, quite impressive. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. But then, of course, I, I, I finally I saved up the money after a little while to get a Rider Waite deck and proceeded mm-hmm. from there. Um, but but yeah, so that's basically how I started. Nobody in my family was into this kind of thing. They were, you know, very comfortably suburban American, um, not even sufficiently concerned with spiritual things to be to be properly agnostic. Just more apathetic than anything else. None of them. My dad still thinks um, that this is, this stuff is really weird, but I'm making a living at it, so he's cool with it. Yes. So you you drew your own, and then got a Rider Waite deck, and then got um, a, then went out to a Rider Waite deck. Went on from there mm-hmm. to the to David Palladini's Aquarian deck, and I've got about thirty decks at this point. And I, this, we're not going to focus a lot on tarot in this in this interview, but I'm really mm-hmm. curious. When you do use tarot, what are some of your go to decks? What are the ones that you tend to favor? Um, it's a mix. I like the Aquarian deck. That was my standard. David Palladini's Aquarian deck was my standard deck for like 30 years. It was the one that I, that I turned to first because I tend to get good, clear readings with it. Um, the writer weight I like using for meditation because um, Pamela Colvin Smith, working with Arthur Edward Waite, put a lot of very, very deep stuff into it. And so as a meditative deck, I prefer it to, say, Crowley's Foth deck, which is not, um, I mean, it, which is great symbolically, but ugly. Uh, um, let's see, other tarot decks I've um, there's a deck called the Merlin Tarot, which is kind of a kind of an idiosyncratic deck by R.J. Stewart and Miranda Gray. And it, it, it has its own set of symbolism and so on, but that's, that's another one that I tend to use a lot. It works well for me, and I like the symbolism. Um, let's see. For tarot decks, one that I recently got was the Wagner Ring Cycle Tarot. I've forgotten the name of the, the compiler, but um, it was actually made from... Yeah, it was, it was made from 19th century... I'm going to forget the artist. Arthur Rackham mm-hmm. did a complete set of illustrations to the Ring of the Nibelung. That would be and, a beautiful deck, I'm sure. Yeah, and so, so, this, so the, the, the person who put the deck together basically cropped and trimmed and chopped and made a, you know, a 78-card deck of Arthur Rackham ring images. And as I, I am, I am a, a crazed Wagner fan, of course I had to have that. 
and I've just started using it. And it seems it's pretty good. It is responding very well. I will definitely want to look that up. My my husband. I would I would say I would say check Wagner it out. Yeah. So. Oh good, sweet. Okay, yeah. Well, there there we go. I am slightly less so, though I do enjoy playing it. It's uh, but mm-hmm. well, the art. I know that the artwork you're talking about is gorgeous. I would love to see that as a tarot deck. So that's pretty. It's funny. It 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 really works well. Mm-hmm. Um. So going into geomancy, because I know that that mm-hmm. is uh, that is something that. You have done such a service for, for all of us in terms of the work you've done within geomancy and, and bringing that more forward in mm-hmm. the occult world, shall we say. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. How You mentioned a, a book on geomancy and kind of diving into that early on. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit more about how, how your journey into geomancy oh, sure. Sure. Um, the, the book in question, I still have my copy of it, was Techniques of High Magic by Francis King and Stephen Skinner. Stephen Skinner is really the founder of the modern geomancy renaissance. Um, he, he, I'm not sure where he ran across it, probably in the Golden Dawn stuff, but he started doing books um, on geomancy and related subjects when I was still just getting into this stuff. And he's still active. He's still out there. Um, so, but, but he included, he, he did a geomancy chapter for this book, Techniques of High Magic, and, and he did several other books. And there were, I, I basically, I, I thought it was really cool, and I gathered a couple of other books, and, but it was very limited. Um, the material that, that was available, just, it didn't have a lot of divinatory depth. Um, you know, the, the Golden Dawn version of it, you'd, you'd go through this elaborate process and come up with something and look something up on the table, and it would say, evil, except for bloodletting. Yes. How very useful. <laughs> so I was kind of frustrated by this, and I, <laughs> I worked with it and tried to get a sense. What, what happened then was I, I, had, I, I went to college in, in the very early 1980s and left after three years without a degree. I had six majors in that time, and I'm sure you know that story. And so, um, but I ended up going back to college in the early 1990s to finish my degree. And while I was there, um, I had picked up a, one of the things I, I was there to do was pick up a good grasp of Latin, which I knew I needed for my occult studies. And while I was there, I managed to find a, a, a book um, in French, which I did not read at that time, but which had an appendix, as an appendix, a Latin text by, P, by Pietro Diabano, who was a very famous Renaissance occultist, which was a text on um, how to interpret geometric charts. I was going, wow, what an interesting thing. So I photocopied the thing from the book and proceeded to use my uh, still slightly novice grasp of Latin to translate it. And I think I was about a page and a half into the the ink-smeared notebook that I was going when my jaw literally just about bounced off my lap because it had techniques of a level of clarity that I had never seen anybody discuss anywhere else. Techniques for for taking for setting up a geometric chart and then reading off clear yes no answers all this kind of stuff was great, so I proceeded to translate the whole thing. Um, it was actually published as an appendix to my first book in geomancy on my, on geomancy earth divination earth magic, and I just went to town. I took that technique and I proceeded to plunge into a whole series of other old books on geomancy. Um, my Latin improved rather sharply in the process, and. <laughs> I, but so I ended up with this with this toolkit of techniques that really made geomancy speak to me well, and so I started doing a lot of geomancy, and 
I learned a couple of things very early about geomancy. The first and most important is that you know the kind of divination that's very vague and very feel-oriented and very, you know, kind of general and sort of gives you, gives you the emotional tone of the thing? That's None of that is geomancy. Geomancy is cut and dried. It gives you clear yes-no answers for real, you know, straight-up answers for real-world questions. And it is a very, the second thing, of course, came from that, which is a very risky thing to do this for people at, say, um, a pagan event or, or a, uh, you know, an occult fair or something like that, because they will ask you, you know, will I get my, will, will I achieve my greatest dream? And you cast the thing and it says, no. Yes. They're not happy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I have not actually had anybody fling, you know, a handful of coins into my face, but it came close on a couple of occasions. So geomancy is a great oracle if you're interested in um, the straight-up the, the straight facts. It is a very poor oracle if you want, if you want hand-holding. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there's not a lot of um, gray areas possible sometimes in its bluntness. Um, just, exactly. Just to uh, take a step slightly backwards for a moment, sure. I think a lot sure. of people that are listening to this will probably be familiar with geomancy and may already have re- read your books on that. But can you briefly describe for people um, what the art of geomancy is? Oh, sure. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, basically, geomancy, um, geomancy uses a set of 16 Four-digit binary numbers. You can say that these days, and most people know what you mean. They're basically combinations of one dot or two dots. There are four of them in a vertical column. It's like the Yijing, you know, how you have the straight lines and the broken lines, except it's groups of four rather than groups of six. Um, probably comes from Sub-Saharan Africa originally, by the way. Um, there are a lot of divination systems in there that, that have that same kind of, um, you know, four, four-digit binary number divinations. But um, you cast, you, you use any random number. Uh, or try that again, any random method, any randomizing method, whether um, flipping coins, rolling dice, um, complicated um, things involving sand and a stick, there's all kinds of methods of doing it, to generate four of these figures, and then you combine them in certain ways and come up with a geometric chart, which is a whole series of different positions. Each one has, has its own meaning. And then you interpret that the way you'd interpret any other divination. One of the tricks, though, is that certain specific relations in a geomatic chart give you a definite yes or a definite no. And that's, that's one of the things that makes, it, that makes it really very distinctive among, you know, sort of the run-of-the-mill divination methods. Um, there's a straightforward way for it to say, yes, this will succeed. Or, yes, this will succeed, but you're going to have to work at it. Or, yes, this will succeed, but you need help. Or, no. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah. So basically, it's it, it's some people call it the Yijing of the West because it it doesn't have the you know the long philosophical books connected to it, but it does have that basic binary structure, and it's it's a little fussy to learn. And certainly a little more so than say just shuffling a deck of cards. But but once you've learned it, it's I've, I've taught it to. Um, Literally hundreds of people at this point in workshops, and by the by the end of a two-day workshop, everybody's casting geomancy charts and reading them. It's very quite straightforward. I I uh, really enjoyed your books on that, and have recommended them to many people. And I know I've heard Thank from you. other people that that your books were their sort of um, main entryway into the art of geomancy. And geomancy, since the time you you published those books, has become 
recently more and more popular, which is, I think, wonderful because I think it's, it's a wonderful art that should be practiced mm-hmm. more. Um, have you, how do you feel about the renaissance of geomancy? Why do you think it is, it is coming so much more to the fore as, it, you know, as an art again? Well, that's, that's a good question. Um, it, it has been a slow process. Um, but let's see. I mean, my first my first um, geomancy book was published in two thousand. I think it was right around then. And so it's been it's been a slow process. But but it is it is it has really picked up in in recent years. I think part of it is the same thing that's been driving a certain amount of attention to other divination methods uh, like the Lenormand deck that don't give you a lot of wiggle room. Because there, the divina, a lot of divination systems went way far into the sort of, the sort of touchy-feely end of things. The, um, you know, what do you want this to mean is, is kind of satirical, but it, but too often it turned into that. Um, and I think a lot of people actually want answers. I know a lot of people who've taken up Lenormand, the Lenormand deck precisely because, you know, the answer's right there. There isn't a lot of room to, to wiggle. And geomancy is the same way. You cast a geomantic reading, you, you know, you live with the consequences because it's going to tell you. And I think especially at this point, there's been, we, we've kind of had our plunge into wishful thinking. Um, if I, I'm sure most of our, our listeners recall The Secret you know, the whole positive thinking thing. If you just tell the universe what you want, you'll be, you know, when you wish upon a star, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't work too well, as we all found out, as we've all found out repeatedly now. And I think a lot of people are actually getting to the point that they want straight up real world answers from their divination system. And Geomancy is very well, very well prepared for that. Very well, um, suited to that kind of question. That's a guess on my part. I don't, I, uh, it would be interested. I'd be very interested to see somebody doing a study or something and saying, ah, here's the C, you know, um, here are the 23 reasons that people take, take up geomancy. But unless I get the funding, I don't think that's likely to happen soon. Oh, that also sounds like that could be rather a, a not very good article as well, <laughs> so, <laughs> depending on who did it. Um, yeah. Well, you've kind of answered one of my, my follow-up questions was going to be why geomancy, if you were explaining to someone why, you know, they should learn this. I think that mm-hmm. a lot of those reasons that you've just enumerated say that very yeah. clearly. Um, but in, in some cases, are there situations where you feel geomancy would not be the art that, that if somebody came to you and said, I have this question, would there mm-hmm. be a circumstance where you'd say, yeah, you know, maybe not geomancy, maybe, maybe oh, oh, good heavens, yes. go. and, and if so, like what kind of, what would, what would kind of push you in that other, in another direction? Okay. Precisely because, I mean, geomancy, the, even the word means earth divination. It's very practical. It's very down to earth. If you want to know subtleties about, you know, relationships and things like that, if you want to know um, the, the feely stuff, the things having to do with the, with the emotional world and with interpersonal connections and so on, it's, those 16 figures are a bit of a blunt instrument. They will give you a clear answer, but they may not give you a detailed answer. And so this is one of the things that tar- the tarot is frankly best at. Um, you know, if say you want to sit down and somebody wants to know, you know, here is, here is this relationship that I'm having with my significant other, with my coworker, with my parent or what have you. Um, I want to understand all the, these various forces that are causing confusion. You want to go to something like tarot 
because the, those 78 different snapshot possibilities plus their combinations are going to give you a lot more information. It's a lot more useful. Um, and other than that, um, of course, the, the other thing is simply that different people have, have different responses to divination. I've known several people who, for some reason, they could get really good readings on GMSU on each subject that didn't have to do with money. If it has to do with money, they would constantly get wrong, you know, straight up wrong readings where they'd get the reading and, you know, it'd say, yes, you'll get the job and they wouldn't get the job or what have you. Right. And so somebody like that probably needs to do something else anytime they have a, a you know, a money related question. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's that kind of what you just said about the, the only 16 figures. So 16 is, is that's very different from Tarot. It's even, yeah. it's less than OM and certain other, you know, like oh, yeah. things like that. So uh, the, it has, it has that limitation, which I don't, it, it works differently, obviously, because you can have repeated mm-hmm. characters, which mm-hmm, some mm-hmm. of those other systems can't. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also led to the issue of people very easily saying, well, X plus X with that as the judge means evil except for bloodletting. Um. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. And that, that's, why, that's, why you ha- that's why you have to be a little more flexible than that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that then that goes into the, uh, it's a little early for where I was planning to go with this, but it might as well go with it now. Um, it's that age-old question of, of how much can be done by rote memorizing, you know, meanings of things, meanings of combinations of the left witness mm-hmm. and the right witness and the judge mm-hmm. and the sentence and all that, and how much is intuitive or beyond that and mm-hmm. just kind of mm-hmm. the skill of the diviner, you know what I mean? That, mm-hmm. That's not what you can just get out of a book. And I think, arguably, I would think some of Geomancy's reason for getting shelved was because it, people didn't, weren't doing that subtlety anymore. They lost that and it started to... Exactly. You know, Weekend. Exactly. Yeah, when you treat geomancy in a purely mechanical fashion and just read things out of the book, you know, like any other oracle, it, it falls flat. You've got to have that intuitive dimension, or you're not going to do. You're not going to get good results. And so, yeah, there was a lot of there was a lot of tendency in the in the late Renaissance and thereafter, where geomancy survived at all, to reduce it to this very mechanical kind of process, where you just go kathunk kathunk kathunk, and out comes a reading, and. They weren't very accurate because, precisely because you've got to be, you know, you, you, let's say you, you've done a chart. You've got, um, I mean, I, I, mo- I mostly prefer to do the house chart rather than the shield chart. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the house, for, for those of our readers or those of our listeners who haven't gotten that, basically there are two ways you can lay out the figures. The house chart is ultimately is derived from astrology. So you have 12 houses, just like the 12 houses of a horoscope. And so the house, but the house chart is the one that has all the neat stuff that Pietro Diabano talked about, and that's why I tend to use it. But so, yeah, you've, you know, you've got your figure in, the, in this house and your figure in that house, and you've got the relationship between them, whatever that might be. But you really need to, to relate that to the situation, to relate that to your intuition, to let it tell you a story. You know, there's an extent to which all divination is the art of storytelling. And if you learn how to let it tell the story to you and then tell the story to yourself or to the querent, um, then then th- interesting things actually start happening. It's not just a, a sort of mechanical thing. So I think that also kind of relates to um, a question that I've heard that I've discussed with a lot of other people. And I, I mm-hmm. have a couple of times asked guests on the show before their their feeling of how how essential how essential the question is to divining 
mm-hmm. in the sense that like some people will do for I, I can I can do this more more easily with tarot the idea of doing like a daily draw of saying like, well, I'm just mm-hmm. going to, you know, have a, a draw for the day and see what that mm-hmm. is. And some people are in favor of that because it helps you kind of see how that will, might in, unfold in your day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. other people say, no, that's useless because you need to have a question. You have to have context mm-hmm. in order to have meaning. Like, mm-hmm. does that apply with geomancy, would you say, or do you, is it different? In my experience, geomancy is one of the most question dependent divinations there is. Mm-hmm. You have to have a certainly if you're going to do the house chart, you have to have a question because without a question, you have no basis for interpretation. Mm-hmm. You can do a shield chart without a question, but even then, it's not going to tell you much because you know in in correspondence with what there are ways you can do a daily chart or a weekly chart or a monthly chart or a yearly chart, but they're they're very specialized. Mm-hmm. And normally speaking, you know, when I was doing um, a lot of geomatic divination at pagan events and so on, I would say, you know, you have to have a question. If you don't have a question, I can't give you the answer. Yeah. And so, but but it, that really varies from oracle to oracle. In my experience, there are some some oracles. It's doing a doing a daily reading with something very simple. You know, this is me. This is my situation. This is my outcome, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, is 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 perfectly effective. You get good results that way. Um, I've never had. I've never really had much luck doing just a single card or a single. I, I, yeah. I want. The, I want those three so I have some context. But um, but you know, some oracles are really good with that. Um, OM is one that um, I've had really good results doing that kind of thing with. Mm-hmm. Um, the my my. <laughs> My my orphan child, the sacred geometry oracle, which thank you is going to be out again in a better form in April, um, is another one that works very well with that. But geomancy wants a question, mm-hmm. so that it's it very, can be blunt very, with its answer. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you know, it's you, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ask me a question. You got to listen to the answer. That's you know, geomancy always to me has this kind of Brooklyn accent. <laughs> what do you want? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whether you whether you like the answer or not, you will get yeah. It. Whether you like it or not, you're gonna you're gonna take the answer. <laughs> so yeah, I wanted to kind of pivot a little bit to talking talking philosophy. Uh, oh yeah. Kind of talking about the the philosophy and and thoughts on on how this works and why this works and and things of that nature, just in, in mm-hmm. slightly more general terms with divination. Oh, sure. Um, in, I think it's, it's in one of your geomancy books. You talk, you, ex, you mention um, the concepts of natura naturata and natura mm-hmm. naturans and mm-hmm. how that relates to sort of uh, the view of divination and magic in the Renaissance and Middle Ages. It's kind mm-hmm. of how the forces of nature or, you know, omens in the mm-hmm. world are very much a part of being able to divine appropriately. And I was wondering if you could just yeah. explain those terms oh, yeah. a little bit. Yeah. Um, natura, natura, natura naturans and natura naturata. Um, Latin jargon. If you happen to be up to your eyeballs in, in you know, medieval and Renaissance philosophy, you already know these things, but that's, that's not a common study these days. <laughs> um, but the idea is we, we encounter nature in two contexts. We encounter nature in Things that have been brought into being. Actually, let me start. The word nature comes from the word for be, uh, the verb to be born. Okay, nature. Nature is the things that are born. Mm-hmm. Nature is also the things that are that are bearing, that are giving birth. So um, you can look at the things that are born. You look at the things that are made by nature, and, and 
and that this happened by, quote, chance, unquote, as we like to call it in our, our present superstitious era. Um, and you can look and you can encounter nature that way. And behind that, you get a sense of nature as a process that is always giving birth to things, that is always creating new things. And this is why people in, in the Middle Ages and Renaissance understood that randomization, what we call randomization, is a way to figure out what the universe is up to. Because nature is constantly giving birth, natura naturans, the, 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 the birther giving birth. Um, and what she is creating is, is, you know, is an expression of what she's up to. So if you can, if you are, you know, paying attention to what spontaneously happens, whether that's omens, whether that's um, the randomization process of geomancy, whether that's the shuffle of cards, even though they didn't do that yet in the Middle Ages, um, you can get an idea of what nature is up to, and thus where she's going to be going with that. And so natura naturata, the nature as the things being born, or the things that have been born, becomes your, your, your key to natura naturans, nature as the birther, the giving birth, the source of things. Yeah, which then relates back to classical forms of divination like augury, because then if you're, exactly. if you're seeing that, you can see it in, in so many different random, exactly. seemingly exactly. random, Once, but not random events. Yeah, Exactly, because, because the idea of a random event did not exist in, in, in classical or medieval or Renaissance philosophy. The idea was, if human beings are not doing it deliberately, then it's being done by nature. And since it's being done by nature, it's being done by nature, and and it's you know it's not it's not it's not just happening by itself. Mm-hmm. So if you want to know what the universe is up to, and there was a lot of, I mean, people tend to miss this when they think about the Middle Ages. People have a very confused idea of medieval philosophy. The idea of nature as a conscious being, as a power. Um, you wouldn't say then a goddess because that was a an, an very uncomfortable term in those days. But the idea was there, basically this immense feminine presence um, that was secondary to the Christian trinity, but created by the trinity and given power over the earth and told, okay, you know, play with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that, was, that was a common idea in, in, medieval, in medieval times. It was normal. It was just people tr- took that as a matter of course. And and so that that fate that played a lo- very large role in how they understood divination and how they understood a lot of other things. Yes, and I wanted to. Yeah, I actually want to read something from from. Uh, yeah, I don't remember which of your two geomancy books this is from. I'm mm-hmm. sorry, I put a little quote in here in my notes. Don't That's remember fine. which one I took it from, but I I, in any case, I may not remember either. <laughs> I do assure you that it is something you wrote, though. That I do know. Okay. Um, so I wanted to read just this section of a paragraph, which has to do with um, forces, um, kind of very much related to what you were just saying, and and how you know earlier peoples uh, looked at divination as opposed mm-hmm. to other forms of action. And I'll just read this and then um, ask my question. So. In most of today's occult traditions, ritual magic takes the central role divination had in earlier times. And practitioners of modern magic spend much of their time learning how to raise power and direct it into their magical work. You won't find a word about raising power in Renaissance magical texts, however, because Renaissance occultists relied on the currents of power that exist around us at every moment. The shifting patterns made by those currents could be tracked in many ways, but geomancy was one of the most valued. So it's basically, mm-hmm. it, yeah, 
Could you? And, I, and, I, and I can. Yeah. And yes, I can tell you which which are my book that which are my oh, books okay. that's from. That's from that's from um, uh, the, the the art and practice of geomancy. Ah, okay. This was a test. You did well. Excellent. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, my question is basically, so I, I find that really, obviously, I have a podcast on divination, so I'm fascinated. Mm-hmm. I think it is really ex- exceptionally important in our magical practices in our lives. So I, I found that um, really useful and important to think with about this, the central role of that and how it is not, it's, it's different from necessarily where our focus is sometimes mm-hmm. these days. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, go ahead. No, 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 please go ahead. No, but, but the, that's... that's that di- grasping that difference, and there's there's kind of a story as to how I re- I actually understood that. Um, that was really important for getting a sense of of what the differences between our modern magical tradition and the and the much broader and more ancient traditions out of which it's partly derived. Because yeah, we don't you know we're used to understanding the world as something we do things to, and that's not necessarily healthy. Um, in the Renaissance and before, the idea was you experience the world as something that you participate in and where the power is not in you, or rather, if there is power in you, it, there's a fairly modest amount. The power is in the cosmos, and the question is, are you clever enough to sort of surf the waves of it? Yes, and that power can be conceived of depending on... Who's who's doing the perceiving as as gods, as forces of nature, as mm-hmm. saints, ancestors? Your context mm-hmm. may vary. Would you say? Um, yes, but it, it varied with certainly from from about the time of Socrates to the scientific revolution in the Western world. It didn't vary that much. Whether whatever you called the source of all things, whether you were a Neoplatonist and simply referred to it as Diane the One or whether you were a Christian or referred to it as God or what have you, there was this idea that there is a source of all, crea- of all the creative energy, and energies cascade down through various planes of being from this source to the world that we know. And in the process, it sort of does a, almost like, almost like a pinball game where it's going boink, 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 um, you know, bouncing off each of the planets on the way down and bouncing off various beings and so on. And of course, the planets were understood to be intelligent beings. Um, but there are all these entities, and so saints or ancestors or gods or angels or, you know, fill in the blank. The world was thought to be very, very full of different beings at that time. And all of them participate in these, these cascading currents of energy from the source of all things into the world that we experience. And everything in our world comes into being, is sustained in being, and goes out of being as a result of these cascading flows of energy. So... It's more a matter of you know the, the differences between the um, the pagan Neoplatonist sorcerer like Iamblichus or the Christian wizard or the Jewish wizard or um, the early modern Hermeticist um, was all was mostly a matter of detail. They all had the same broad scheme, and it was purely a matter, in many cases, of what do you call the power that inhabits the the sun? Let's say, do you call that an archangel or do you call that a god? Take your pick. Yeah. And I think if I'm recalling some of the classical ideas of divination was also that there was there was a lot of care and concern to know that you couldn't really know the will or the minds of the mm-hmm. gods anyway. So you were kind mm-hmm. of just trying to align yourself as best with their 
will or with the forces yeah. that were already in play, but you weren't trying yeah. to say like, I can know the specific future, but it's about aligning yourself with the forces yeah. at play as the best you can. Yeah. And also listening because the world, I mean, the gods are trying to tell you what to do. Mm-hmm. The gods are trying to communicate this stuff. If human beings will simply shut up and listen, um, and unless unless the gods have, for some reason have decided to mess with you, in which case you're in trouble. Um, typically, you know, the, you the whole point of religion was to maintain good relations with with the gods and goddesses, so mm-hmm. that um, so, so that you know they would warn you and. They and guide you and say, okay, now's the time you want to do this. And so you did your religious rituals and you did your religious practices and you did divination to give them, so, you know, to give them the way to, to say, okay, now. And which is why, I mean, the reason it's called divination, divination. It's literally um, listening to the gods. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really could not agree more with that. In our modern conceptions of divination, um, it is, it has become such an emphasis on active and like, you know, how can I get to what I want? What is, do as thou wilt, mm-hmm. what is my will that I'm imposing on the world as opposed to mm-hmm. being able to sit back and listen and actually, mm-hmm. you know, align with what's already happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something mm-hmm. that I think has been lost quite a bit. Uh, and that's an important part of a healthy system of magical training how do you i mean i i assume you think that learning divination is is very is a very important part of magical training systems oh it's absolutely it's absolutely central it's absolutely central um the the basic the basic the you know the three legs of the cauldron of basic magical training that i teach to people these days three basic daily practices um some kind of basic ritual work um to typically like a banishing ritual or, or you know, there are certain rituals they use to clean, to cleanse your energy body and to fill it with positive energies. That's one. Um, the second one is discursive meditation, which is not mind emptying, but meditation that actually uses the mind to think more clearly and, and explore symbols and so on. That's the second one. And a daily divination is the third. And those three, just every single day, that's, to my mind, that's the core of an effective, of, of effective occult training. Everything else beyond that is lanyap. Mm-hmm. And it has to be built on that solid foundation. It has to be so built on that foundation, yeah. Mm-hmm. You've got, those, you've got the, the three-footed cauldron, and everything else that goes into the cauldron is supported by those three strong feet. So really coming, coming back a little bit more to the specifics of a system of divination then, because mm-hmm. what we were talking about there and several points earlier, we're talking about how, you know, there are established meanings, there are traditions, there are things that, that, have, that have meaning because um, without boundaries, without limits, without things that we say those 16 figures mean that, that we've mm-hmm. found to be true, then we can't say anything meaningful with them. We, we have to have it, it, a harmonic system yeah. in order to have music and, and so, things like that. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you, by the way. Um, <laughs> I, think you've just, I think you've just overturned about 150 years of modern music, but it's a good thing. Oh, <laughs> yes. Well, you know, <laughs> classical violinist Actually, who really likes Beethoven, so, you know. <laughs> I, 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 I get this. One, one of my novels is about, is about a young composer who ends up going, going to, well, going for Baroque, if you want to say that, um, <laughs> who ends up writing, writing Baroque music instead of um, the latest fashionable stuff. So, you should talk to Daryl more about that because my, my husband's the composer, not myself. Oh, sweet. But, but he uh, definitely would agree with you on that. I won't draw mm-hmm. him into this conversation. It's 
Okay. Podcast, he, should, so. he, he should he should def, he should definitely pick up a copy of my novel, The Shoggoth Concerto. It's about classical music and Shoggoths. Okay, I, I'm sure <laughs> he's nodding in the other room, and I'm sure he's going to. So, but my question, so my question goes back to though. So we obviously technique is important, and we have to have that foundation. But then mm-hmm. we already said that you can get stuck in the the listing, mm-hmm. and I'm just going to read it out of the book. So how do we how do we keep that beginner's mind, that like openness mm-hmm. to the fact that things can have new meanings, that the gods or the mm-hmm. spirits of the universe can have like a completely new interpretation for us that may not match what's in the book? Mm-hmm. And, and I, well, I've had so many conversations with with people that are saying, "But how do I do that? How do I know?" Mm-hmm. If it's not just me wishful thinking versus uh-huh. no, I think this time it, it means this different thing. <laughs> you're, you're asking one of the one of the basic questions of human existence, and it's oh, one that, for example, Aristotle explored in detail. One of one of the things that people tend to get confused about. So many people think the opposite of a bad idea is a good idea. You know, you have the root. Okay, not so. The opposite of one bad idea is another bad idea. The good idea is halfway in between them. Mm-hmm. And so being absolutely rigid and dogmatic, and this can only mean what it meant in 1352, um, that's one kind of stupidity. And this means whatever I want it to mean. That's another kind of stupidity. Somewhere in between, there's that shifting point of balance. Finding it is not easy, but life isn't easy. Now, one place that, one way that um, you can work on that very effectively, and this is one of the reasons that I strongly recommend that daily meditation or daily divination I mentioned a moment ago, it's very simple. When you do your daily divination, write down your interpretation of it. Then go back the next day and look at your interpretation. See, okay, here are the, here are the, the you know, this is the geomancy, geomancy chart I cast for the day. This is what this is what I thought it meant. This is what actually happened during the day. Oh, that's what Fortuna Minor was actually talking about. And yes. that process of yep. going back, it's it's a basic process of science. You check the results of your theories against facts by means of experiment. So every daily divination becomes an experiment. Every interpretation you do is your your best guess as to the results and then you check that day after day and say and pretty soon you start noticing okay fortuna minor every time that comes up it's this oh so that's you know i I need to i need to morph my notion of what fortuna minor means a little bit to include this particular cluster of things and so it becomes very effectively self-correcting once you start doing that once you check your work against the results this can be very, very trying um, if you have a lot of emotions invested in your in the outcome. And of course, that's that's the common thing generally. This is why you know do it do it every day, do it privately. Don't announce loudly. Ooh, I had Fortuna Minor here. That means I'm going to get X Y Z. You know, no, don't make a fool of yourself that way. Just note it down, revisit it a day later. Make your corrections. The next day you say, next time Fortuna Minor comes up, said, no, that probably doesn't mean that because it didn't mean that three days ago. I bet it means, let's, let's, let's retry that. Maybe it means this. And that way, over time, you can work out a very, very subtle and, and detailed sense of what each figure means in, alone and in combination. Yeah, through actually examining results. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's basically, if, if, I may, if I may broaden here, this is something I do constantly in my blog. People will say, well, what's going to, you know, here's this, this horrible crisis or here's this marvelous new whatchamacallit. And my question is always, okay, what happened the last time? Mm. 
that was predicted? Or what happened the last time these events took place? And readers who are not used to, to my approach are usually left going, bit, 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 because they'd never thought to look back at history and use that as a source of examples. Um, but that was that was the basis on which I called the um, the 2008 real estate crash uh, two and a half years in advance. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, if I may veer on a perhaps loaded issue, um, that was why I was able to predict in January of 2016 that Donald Trump would be elected president. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, yeah. I, I, because I pay attention to history and because I'm used to these patterns, it's not any particular brilliance on my part. It's simply I have a good memory and, and I study history. So um, you can do the same thing with divination, and it keeps your divinations from, from, and your divination interpretations from getting wacko. Mm-hmm. And it also allows you to uh, discard things that aren't working rather exactly. than continuing to practice things that don't work or continuing uh, a bad habit of something that you didn't even notice. Exactly. If, you know, you, you keep on saying evil except for bloodletting, you know, and, mm-hmm. uh, but you actually let some blood at that point and it didn't work out well, then obviously you need to change that. <laughs> yes. Hopefully not the bloodletting, you know. Not the blood. Leave the bloodletting. You know, unless you happen to be, you know, the, a patient of, of um, an Ayurvedic physician who uses bloodletting in, in or certain Chinese, certain traditional Chinese med- medical practices use cupping as a, as a practice, I believe. Yeah. And yeah, if it works, it works. <laughs> um, yeah, I would, I kind of want to just kind of move a little bit away from, from uh, geomancy to sure. other forms of divination, mm-hmm. uh, which you have written about. Which I've, I've done a, that a few times. <laughs> <laughs> which includes a form of uh, a, a alphabet of divination, which is not broadly known, shall we know, uh, shall we say? And I will I will pronounce it. It's the Welsh, mm-hmm. so like I said, we'll see. Colbren, uh, Colbren, the Colbren. Yeah. Yes, and you mm-hmm. wrote a, a lovely little book about that, which I I really enjoyed. Um, Thank you. And I wanted you to just, if you could, tell people a little bit about it if they haven't heard about it. Okay, sure. Um, <clears throat> basically. The best I think the best way to explain this is just to sort of sort of. Describe my plunge into that thing. Um, I got involved in the Druid scene um, back in the 1990s, and that's that's been one of the really one of the foundations of my spiritual life ever since. And this is not the ancient Druids. We don't know anything about them. Uh, for all practical purposes, their teachings are lost. What we have is what was called the Druid Revival, which got going in the 18th century, people trying to reconstruct a Druid nature spirituality. And a lot of those people were Welsh. A lot of them were... Um, remarkably odd individuals. And one of the one of the oddest of all was a guy named Edward Williams. Okay, bland name. His the name he took was Yolo Morganuk. Um Yolo was a poet, a brilliant poet. He was one of the greatest forgers of his time. He could do medieval Welsh poems so good that it wasn't it wasn't until the nineteen fifties. This is a guy who lived who died in like eighteen twenty six, I think it was. And it wasn't until the 1950s that his forgeries were actually all caught. He was that good at faking medieval Welsh poetry. Um, he was an opium addict. He was, he, he was a, a very strange, very wild person. And one of the things he did in, in the course of his, his druid bardic teachings was he introduced this alphabet called the Colbrin, which, um, depending on which version, because there are several different versions of it that he claimed had existed at various points in history. Um, but the one that I use in my book is, a tw- is 24 
24 Colburn letters, so the same number of letters as there are runes in the standard elder or the standard um, elder Futarch. So you have the you have these 24 letters. They look rather like runes. They're they're you know sort of straight and straight lines and sharp angles. Um, each one of them corresponds to to well, a sound in the usual sense, but also it draws its meaning from the sound. So that um, ah, the letter A is if you if you put your mouth in the in in the form that you that you need to say A, uh, it's just open. It's comfortable. It's flowing freely, and that's what that letter means. It means free flowing. It means things just moving smoothly ahead, and that's what it means in divination. And so, if you take another one like um, E, okay, the letter E. If you feel feel how that e sounds, it's kind of choked. It's kind of strangled. It's sort of interrupted, and that's what that letter means. It means things have gotten wonky. Things are sort of choked and strangled and, and blocked, and so on and so forth for all twenty all, all twenty four of the letters. Um, this was used by Welsh druids and bards for a good long time. It may still be used by some, but it fell out of fashion. Um, and I ended up having having this long process of digging to find um, online scans of the one book that explained the symbolism of the letters, so I could actually use it for divination. And that's what gave, that's what gave rise to my little book on the Colburn. Because once I found that thing, I was going, "Woohoo! Um, this is great! It makes for a good divination system." And that was where that came from. And I think it's. It's interesting because uh, it it's, hasn't been in favor. And like you said, it, it took you quite a journey in order to find that one mm-hmm. source. And mm-hmm. it, it brings up the interesting question of, <laughs> of course, I, I, well, I will ask the question, uh, what is the, the difference between uh, validity and authenticity and how that, <laughs> how that relates to things as, as varied as, I would say, Ohm and even Runes and the Colbran mm-hmm. and all sorts of other systems that we've sort of put back together, even the, the Greek systems of their alphabet oracles, which we have a little bit of some information on, but not mm-hmm. And how, no. you know, what is that difference? Uh, well, the thing is, authenticity is how accurately does, does this imitate what was being done back whenever? Validity is, does it work? Now, authenticity is incredibly important if you are a museum curator. You know, if you want to, you want to know, here is this, here is this rune stone, let's say. Does it actually date to the 10th century? That's really important if you're a museum curator. If you're a diviner, authenticity isn't worth squat. It does not matter. This oracle may be as old as the bones of Moses and useless. This other oracle may have been made up last Thursday over pizza, and it's great. It gives nice, clear readings. Validity is all that matters for divination. Does it work? And of course, that simply begs the question, because what works for one person may not work for another person. Um, In the case of Colbrin, is it authentic? I mean, is this the actual alphabet passed down to Yolo Morgan by generations of, of Welsh bards in the hills of Glamorgan who had it from, you know, the ancient Druids and all the way back to, to Higadarn in the dawn of time? No, of course it isn't. Um, it's, it, it, has, it has precisely the same relation to historic fact as, say, um, Wicca. 
you know, which isn't, which was not practiced in the Neolithic. I, I'm sorry. Uh, I know, learned still, from my grandmother in the forest. Your, 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 your third-degree grandmother in the new forest. <laughs> I, I'm convinced. This is it's, it's less so now than it used to be, but I used to think there was a granny factory in the new forest that was turning out truckloads of third-degree grannies to distribute across the English-speaking Absolutely. world because there were so many of them. You just have to go uh, there to find one. I mean, <laughs> exactly, exactly. The, you know, these days, I think the, I think the trade has collapsed or something. Maybe, uh, trade barriers probably Trump put a put a tariff on them, um, but. <laughs> But yeah, the the thing is, it doesn't have to be ancient to work. It amazes. It it has been an endless source of amusement to me that very often the people, you know, the people who were insisting on absolute authenticity for this or that or the other, would not think of using a computer that was three years old. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, um, Yol, as far as anyone can tell, Yola Morgano made up the Colburn. He may have seen them in an opium dream, for all we know. Um, but he came up, he, he, he cooked them up, he presented them, he got them out there. Various other Welsh bards and druids picked them up and ran with them and enriched them with their own work. And that's, you know, what better origin could you have? A crazed Welsh poet invented these things. What is not Celtic about that? Mm-hmm. I absolutely poetic inspiration. I mean, poetic inspiration. Poetic inspiration. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it's, it, it does. So it doesn't. It does not have to date back to the dawn of time. It. You know, it does not have to have been practiced by trilobites in the Devonian to be valid. Well, also because that begs the question. Then, if if it has to date back that long, are you implying that the the gods aren't? Aren't around to inspire people anymore. It's, it's, and that's that's a, that's a crucial point. That's a yeah. crucial point. Uh, Yo, what exactly inspired Yolo? I don't think anyone will ever know. But um, his his oracle works. His rich. His most most revival ritual descends from the stuff that he invented. It's great. Um, and so yeah. So the the Colburn the Colburn's a lot of fun. It's a nice. Um, it it appeals to, it appeals to people for many of the same reasons the runes do, and you know it's not that dissimilar. But it has its own slant on things because every every one of the letters is a kind of process. It's you know how is how are things flowing is kind of the question that each letter asks, and so it really puts it, it really puts an interesting slant on things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I just find it really interesting because it, everyone talks about. Oh, um, which is which is wonderful, and we do have a little mm-hmm. bit more historical background for that. But there's also mm-hmm. a lot of you know historical questions around how that was oh, used, yeah. and there's there's so many different opinions on that. You can pick up three different books and get so many yeah. different opinions. And, and the fact remains that that Oum, as a modern divinatory oracle, oracle was invented by Colin. He took the alphabet, turned it into oracle. Colin Murray mm-hmm. in the 1970s. He just sat oh, down and turned it yeah. into an turned it into an oracle, very much doing the same kind of work that Yola Morganic did. And he did an excellent job. Yeah. And that's why Oum is such a marvelous oracle these days, because he took this alphabet and said, ah, I, can, I see how to make that one sing. And he did. Yeah, which is beautiful. And, and the runes as well. I mean, there's, there's oh, yeah. ancient roots, but it had to be completely revamped and, and created in mm-hmm. a sense but that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's again it's like well if we're accepting that we are we're practicing pagans and witches and, and druids and heathens mm-hmm. the gods are there to inspire us so the gods are there <laughs> yeah i mean i mean if if you're a heathen and you're invoking odin he's the master of the runes he knows everything there is about them mm-hmm. of course he's going to whisper things into your dreams mm-hmm. that's what he does you know and and similarly you know the the gods the gods have not gone on vacation 
So speaking of going on vacation, um, I, I, when I was advertising this, so for people who are listening to the replay, this is we are recording this uh, the night of the U.S. election. So we're mm-hmm. not going to talk about the U.S. election because please, no, please, dear, no. <laughs> um, but we are going to talk a little bit about magic in America because I think it's a fascinating subject and I'm an American. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. I, you have written extensively, especially recently, about the history of the occult in America, which I think mm-hmm. is a really important topic that especially a lot of uh, neo-pagans have sort of ignored or not intentionally mm-hmm. ignored, but had ignored in our, in our trainings mm-hmm. or history books. It's mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. fallen to the wayside. And you've talked about various narratives on what happened to the occult and when it disappeared or how it disappeared or if it disappeared. And mm-hmm. there was the, the idea, enlightenment idea that at some point everyone just decided, oh, well, we've discovered magic doesn't exist. Now none of us will practice it anymore. Yay. <laughs> Or the uh-huh. or no, none of the people that we respect ever practiced it. What are you talking about? Um, yeah, and, and those things are not really true. But if you if you wanted to kind of tell people a little bit about what they should know about the real history of the occult, especially in America, what what are some okay. of the main points? Okay, the first thing, the the crucial thing, you, you've covered one of the crucial points, of course, which is that it is simply not true that. Um, one day in 1653, everyone suddenly went, oh, how could we have been so foolish? Of course, magic doesn't work. And, you know, and all became rationalists. That did not happen. Um, and in fact, disbelief in magic has always been a minority view in the Western world. It is the view of a wealthy, influential, and um, politically very well-connected view, a minority, but it is a minority view. Most people in the Western world have always believed in magic, and the majority of them have practiced it. It's, it's that simple. Um, the other crucial thing, and this is the thing that I find the, neo, the pagans tend to fall into, is the mistake of thinking that magic all has to do with Europe. Okay. Um, for a while there, I remember in the 1980s, people acted as though all magic had been invented in England between 1887 when the Golden Dawn was founded and whenever Gerald Gardner finished writing up um, the, his first book of shadows. <laughs> but during that period, because all of magic, if it wasn't the Golden Dawn, it was Alistair Crowley, it was Dion Fortune, or it was some form of, 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 of Gardnerian Wicca or Gardnerian or, you know, Alexandrian or um, some other Gardnerian knockoff Wicca. And so this immense world of American magic which has been going on since colonial times, um, had been completely forgotten. People just assumed that magic had to do with swords and cloaks and unicorns barfing rainbows or what have you. You know, they, they, it was all this very oldy worldy Lord of the Rings, um, D, you know, D&D-influenced uh, medieval falderall, which is fine. I played a lot of D&D back in the day, but I also read a lot of Tolkien. But mm-hmm. America has its own magical history. Um, there were Rosicrucian communes in Pennsylvania before the year 1700. There were wizards and astrologers and diviners and hoodoo doctors in all over the 13 colonies before the revolution ever happened. Um, some of the most famous figures in, in American legend and life were deeply involved in, in occultism of one form or another. We've all heard of Johnny Appleseed. Not many people remember that he was a missionary 
for the Swedenborgian Church, which was a church founded by a Swedish mystic named Emanuel Swedenborg, which included, back in the day, a lot of magical stuff. Um, everyone knows about L. Frank Baum, the guy who invented, the guy who wrote The Wizard of Oz. The guy was a theosophist. He was up to his eyeballs in occultism. If you've ever wondered why you can take the, four, the five individuals who went down the, the yellow brick road, you have the... Um, you have the scarecrow who needs a brain, that's air. We have the tin woodman who needs a heart, that's water. You have the cowardly lion who wants, a, who wants courage, that's fire. You have Dorothy who just wants to get back to Kansas, that's earth. And then you have the little dog, Toto. Um, you don't need a lot of Latin to realize what that's hinting at. Who's the one who reveals the little man behind the curtain? Toto's the element of spirit. Baum did that deliberately. All of his books are up to their eyeballs in occult symbolism. Nobody thinks of that anymore. People have forgotten about that. But America has this amazingly rich, multicultural, multi-ethnic, um, just amazing magical history. And so that's one of the things I've been writing about on my blog. There will be a book on the subject. Oh, excellent. I'm very happy to hear that. Oh, yeah. yeah. The thing is, anytime, a lot of my series of posts on my blogs end up becoming books. It's, it's a convenient way to do things. <laughs> you uh, work it out and, and uh, get to mm -hmm. have guinea pigs for... for exactly. Yeah. And, and, and everyone asks questions. Mm -hmm. Everyone asks questions. So I go, oh, I didn't explain that, did I? And so it squirrels, 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 takes some notes. I, I would also say that I think that the history of the occult, um, not to go too, too far the feminist route, but really it is also sexist because there's the whole spiritualist movement of the 19th century. Oh my God, it yeah. gets like, oh yeah, well, we're not going to talk about them, but we'll talk about Crowley and, and Gardner until the cows come home. And I say that as, yeah. as a witch, as a Wiccan, mm -hmm. but it's like, mm -hmm. well, you know, we did have all these, these people that were practicing for a very long time, millions yeah. of people, and, and yet we just don't talk about them because it was primarily women, and, and we wouldn't really have an abolition, abolitionist and feminist movement mm -hmm. in the early 20th century if not for those, those not, you know, exactly. pioneers. The thing, the thing is, from, from, from colonial times onward, one of the few areas in which women could break out of the, sort of the, the canned gender roles of the time and actually make a, make a unique life for themselves was alternative spirituality. Whether you have Mother Ann Lee, the founder of the Shakers, whether you have Mayor, Mary Baker Eddy, the founder of Christian Science, whether you have all the early theosophists, a lot of women, Matilda Jocelyn Gage and so on, there was just this torrent of smart, um, dynamic, creative women who were saying, wow, I don't have to put up with you know, this incredibly restricted field of action. I can go out and do something astonishing in the world. And they did. And so you have, even in the, you know, even, even those, those groups that were founded or largely organized by men, they typically had a lot of these smart, active, dynamic women who got involved, who took important roles, um, who, were, who were very significant figures in the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's just, you know, from the point of view of women's, of women's history, um, similarly, of course, um, the, uh, the various ethnic issues, the various racial issues, mm -hmm. there were a lot of very, very important African-American figures in the occult scene. Um, I've, I've written about a few of them already in my, um, in my series of posts. Uh, P.B. Randolph, above all else, who <laughs> just a, a, a titanic figure in the history of Western occultism. Um, <clears throat> but yeah. Yeah. You've got all of these people who were typically coming from 
very much one-down positions, whether by due to their gender, whether due to their race or ethnicity, whether due to their social class. You know, you have people who are like, like um, Andrew Jackson Davis, who was the son of the town drunk in Poughkeepsie, New York. And you can imagine what kind of economic status he had. <laughs> and, and yet he ended up becoming a really famous leading figure coming out of that kind of class background because he had some, he had some talents for spiritualism, he was, and he, ended, he turned out to be a very good writer. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so it's, it's very much this, this a sort of way around the, the social barriers of, the, of, of that time, and it's still being used around the very strict social barriers of our present time. It's yeah. just that a lot of people don't like to talk about the latter. Well, it also plays back into the, no, 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 we're extremely rational, which means that magic has not been a part of that. We will ignore those parts of person's <laughs> life because they were rational and we respect them, and therefore they don't uh-huh. that. Yeah, and, or we ignore and them altogether we're all going to... we can to scrub that. So Yes, yes, therefore we're all going to sit in a circle and close our eyes and make believe. <clears throat> yes. So The world um... is so much more interesting than that. <laughs> That is, that is definitely for sure. So you have a book coming out, which I, I told you before we started taping that I was sad was not out already, um, which, I, yes, is co- going to be called, oh, correctly, the King, the King in Orange. The King in Orange. Now, anybody, any of our listeners who know their way around um, H.P. Lovecraft and the weird tales of his time and that influenced him will know about The King in Yellow. Um, Robert W. Chambers' first and, and far and away best book, um, and this this mysterious, you know, yellow clad figure who brings madness and chaos wherever he goes. Um, about the time that um, our that, that Donald Trump began his um, presidential run. I ended up having a whole series of kind of parallel of Craftian novels come crashing into my head, and I, wrote, I published the eleven books in this in, in this sort of Lovecraft turned upside down world in which the the tentacled great old ones are actually the old gods of nature, and the real bad guys are a are a cult of crazed rationalists who want to um, make all that that noise about man's conquest of nature into a bloodstained ecocidal reality. It, it's a wild thing, but at any rate. All this process, all through the course of writing this, I was reading lots of the old weird tales and so on, and watching what was going on in the political world, watching the very important role of magic in the 2016 campaign and the um, far less successful attempts to counter that since then on, on the other side of the political spectrum. And it, there was just something so profoundly Lovecraftian about the whole thing, the sense that something very strange had broken loose from from the depths and was, you know, rising from drowned Ovier or what have you, um, it's to shatter our supposedly rational world. And since, of course, the color of that being was orange rather than yellow, the, the title followed. But yeah, it's a, it is an account of the role of magic and of, and of occult forces mm-hmm. in the Donald Trump phenomenon. And I will be um, finishing it up as soon as the, the current fracas is over, but I'm, I'm, I'm pretty confident that I, know, that I know where things are going, and um, I don't expect to do a lot of revision. <laughs> but yeah, that will be out in June. Um, it will, I think, I, I think it will probably do what most of my best books do and offend everybody. 
equal opportunity in that way then yes equal opportunity offender yes yes um the 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 discordian church which was an oddity i was involved in at one point to, to a certain extent <laughs> um had a character whose title was offender of the faith mm. and i was like that <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well i mean without obviously you're you're writing the book right now so i would love to talk to you about it after it's out but um i, w- I will make sure you get an advanced copy Oh yeah, I, I would be. Oh, I can. Excited. Oh, I can do that. This is this. This one's with with uh, Intertrusions International. They're very professional. They go. They distribute through Simon and Schuster, and mm-hmm. so they've got. They've actually got a first rate marketing department. So I will be. Um, I will be gathering up um, podcasters, mm-hmm. and um, getting Fantastic. getting them advanced copies and all kinds of other stuff. And I will really look forward to having conversations about it. Well, it, it, just to kind of go over, I, I remember you. You wrote a little bit about, um, I remember some of the articles, I may not have read all, uh, all of the things that you posted that was kind of in this vein over the last couple of years, um, mm-hmm. but you were talking about how there, there is a, a confusion of ideas around the magic that might have gone into the, the politics of this election and, and mm-hmm. its aftermath. And mm-hmm. that a lot of, uh, for example, like the mainstream media tends to, to lump Wicca and, and pretty much all magical practitioners into the leftward end of the spectrum, which is mm-hmm. true. There's a, there, that is a, a very um, heavy, you know, influence um, on mm-hmm. the movement because of, you know, liberalism and it has a lot of history in our, in our movement, but mm-hmm. it's not, it's not entire. It's not the entirety and Quite there the is a lot of there is a lot of magic that that was done probably from the rightward the, the right end of the spectrum whether mm-hmm. consciously or not can you just can you touch on a little bit of of, oh, sure. of that sure the basically the, the thing is as with most things in our society um, the liberal viewpoint gets the media attention mm-hmm. and um, what you hear of the conservative viewpoint is filtered through the media the the, media, the media's liberal lens and so there's 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 a huge amount that's going on in the world, in America, in the crawl spaces of our culture that nobody talks about because it doesn't fit whatever narrative the media is pushing is pushing at this point. Um, a lot of that has been um, sort of stirring for some time. You had um, a lot of people in what has vaguely been called the alt right. Um, who actually got interested in magic in the run-up to um, the 2016 election. Uh, they got in, interested in a specific school of magic at that time, which was called chaos magic, and which the great advantage of chaos magic is that it's fairly quick to learn. And so, and so you had a lot of these people who were, these are people who are on the chans, who are on, you know, various, various pro-Trump message boards and so on, entirely off the radar screen of the main society, and they were suddenly going, wow, you mean we could learn this stuff and like use it to help Trump's campaign? Cool. And so it got weird because they started doing these things and they started getting these cascades of coincidences. Mm -hmm. And the kind of thing that we were talking about omens a little while ago, they started getting a lot of that. And you know, we saw what happened in 2016, and there has been just this continuous process. I ended up, because I am politically fairly centrist, um, I am, you know, and by which, what that means is that I'm perfectly willing to talk to anybody 
unlike people in some extremes. And I ended up talking to some of these people who were involved in um, the, 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 the great meme war of 2016, as they called it. And many of them went on to start getting very seriously interested in, in, in various other kinds of, of more serious, more detailed, more extensive magical traditions, and they've kept at it. So there is this entire world of, of, occult, of conservative occultism that you occasionally hear references to what's called traditionalism, which is a, a philosophical sort of esoteric viewpoint that mostly European, but has some American supporters. But there's, there's, there's a lot going on there. There's a lot of people who are, who are sort of shut out from the, from the mainstream the corporate media's discourse and so on, who are very deeply into this stuff. And there have been for a very long time. And while you have the sort of mainstream Wiccan, the, the sort of big Wiccan organizations and the big festivals and the, the publishers that tend to put out most of this stuff, who are very much going along with this sort of liberal approach to the, the neo-pagan movement, there's the other end of things. There's a lot of people. And they're not, you know, Pache, the, the usual assumptions, they're not racists. They're not, you know, desperately looking forward to throwing everyone who disagrees with them in a, in a concentration camp. They simply have very different political opinions than those that are had on the left, and they want, they feel they deserve a voice. And so watching that process emerge and watching the, the very clumsy attempts on the part of some of the other people involved to try to squelch that, it's, it's been colorful. It's been very interesting to watch. So that ties into, uh, you... Uh... You've talked a little bit about how we're, we're getting towards the end, but I, I wanted to just kind of ask you, you've talked a little bit of how you see the interest in these types of um, occult things kind of goes mm -hmm. in waves, right? So mm -hmm. we had, we've had waves in, in the 60s, we've had waves, you know, through Golden Dawn mm -hmm. and, and things around the turn of the century and stuff like that. And it, and it kind of comes and goes in terms of its popularity mm -hmm. levels. And mm -hmm. right now, I would, I would argue that astrology and tarot is having, is having a moment and people are really excited about that mm -hmm. even if they haven't been interested in occult things mm -hmm. before, which is, which is great. And, bef and maybe, like, there's always some movie that co comes out and, and people mm -hmm. are interested in witchcraft again or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So the, it comes in these little waves and then it has the bigger waves. Um, and you had written that you thought that kind of that neo-pagan scene was, you know, the interest that, that was on the wane. But now mm -hmm. talking about this and its uh, influence on elections, do you see that mm -hmm. as like a separate wave? Is something oh, yeah. that brought interest back in because we're now in this mm -hmm. rather upsetting and and liminal time in our culture, mm -hmm. shall we say? <laughs> For yeah. Better I, I see, yeah, I see it as a very different wave. Um, mm -hmm. The neo-pagan wave peaked right around um, 2007, 2008. Mm -hmm. And you can tell this because sales of books, sales of, of products. Uh, you can probably remember when there were little Wiccan stores, little witch stores scattered all over the place. Most of those are closed now. Oh, yes. Oh, sad. And so, yeah, it, it is sad. I, I, I like those I like much the little witch shops. <laughs> I love the little witch shops. Um, I, I did book signings in quite mm. a few of them. <laughs> but yeah, I, I love the little witch shops. But a lot of, most of them are closed now because it, it peaked and sort of started losing popularity. What we have stirring now is, I think, something else. Because this, this is the thing, you know, waves come and go. And... Things what 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 has very often happened, and I'm thinking here of the history of theosophy, the history of spiritualism. You have a period when 
some new synthesis of occult thought seizes the popular imagination, like, like the way that the way that um, neo paganism did in the wake of Starhawk's book, uh, The Spiral Dance, and Margot Adler's book, Drawing Down the Moon, both published in '79, and immediately afterwards, you had this rush of people going, "Wow, this is cool!" And so everything got sort of refashioned in a neo pagan mode, and that whole thing had its wave. The same thing happened. After 1875, when, when Helena Petrovna Blavatsky, another of those dynamic women I was talking about, wrote um, or helped found the Theosophical Society and started writing her books on the subject, you know, where everything was very theosophical for a while, but that rose and that waned. It finally crashed and burned in 1929, leaving, leaving a much smaller Theosophical Society behind. And what happened after that was a lot of the mass interest died and a lot of the media interest died, but you had a return of interest in a lot of the older, more traditional stuff. It was after that that the Rosicrucian, the various Rosicrucian movements really had the golden age in the United States. It was after that that alchemy was revived here. And um, it was after that that, that the, the interest in the Golden Dawn and ceremonial magic really picked up. So I think one of the things we could we could be expecting to see in the decades ahead is a lot of people turning toward more traditional modes of magical practice, going back to things like um, classic astrology, going back to some of the older means of divination, going back to ceremonial magic and Rosicrucianism and, and all these other traditions that have been around for a long time uh, that are not neo-pagan. But that fills some of the. Hello. No. Yeah. No. I hear you. Sorry. Okay. The fill. I, I got a really loud beep suddenly. Oh. Um, oh. That fills some of the same niche, and that. Um, I just got another beep. Did you hear that? No. That must be only on your end. Okay. I'll try to ignore the beeps from here on in. <laughs> uh, and you know, the fill this. The fill the same niche that interests people um, who might who you know thirty years ago would have joined a Wiccan coven. Mm-hmm. So, so I think you know the the future of occultism is always bright. There's always been an occult presence in this country, everywhere in the Western world. It's just it it moves in and out of sort of the mass market, and it moves in and out of interest in different things. Yeah, yeah, but there's always, especially especially at times, I I would say I think that it will be even more because people turn to magic when when things when things get a little bit rough. You mm-hmm. go to magic because you need to uh, have those yeah. those methods to hand, shall we say? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. When um, uh, what about a, it's been about a year now. I started I started doing um, political astrology forecasts uh, by way of uh, Patreon and Subscribestar, and it's turned into this. It's turned into a major thing. It's a significant part of my income. It's just, there's a lot of people who really want that. You know what what guidance I can give them based on based on what the what the heavens are doing. And so, yeah, in in a time in times of turmoil, in times where um, existing structures seem to be falling to bits, and nobody's quite sure what will replace them, if anything, magic, divination, astrology, all these things—they're they're your go-to things. Mm-hmm. People turn to them. Well, then that takes me to one of my my final questions, which I, I like to I want to ask you, which is specifically at these particular times. Is there anything in particular in people's magical practice or in their divinatory practice that you would give sort of as advice for people to focus on or that you find yourself doing more of? What, what would you want people to kind of focus on or to, to think about? Um, this is the, these are the times when you really need not to neglect the basics. Um, this is where your, your foundational practices are the things that 
matter most because you've got to focus on building a solid life for yourself, building a solid foundation for what you're doing and, and how you're facing the world. And those basic practices, you know, whether my particular set of ritual, meditation, divination, what have you, every tradition has its basic practices. That's, that's the foundation. and That's the thing you need to build in tough times because whatever structure you build will only be as strong as its foundation. So that's, you know, get back to the basics, buckle down to those practices, and and um, you'll be in much better shape to weather the challenges ahead. Mm-hmm. That is wonderful advice. So I thank you for that. Um, well, thank you. If, if people are want to get in touch with you or they want to find out about your work, where should they go? Where would you direct them? Um, I would direct them to my blog, which is www.ecosophia.net. I would direct them to my DreamWith journal, which is ecosophia.dreamwith.org. Um, I don't do a lot of regular social media, and my um, actually I don't do any. <laughs> and um, my email address is not readily available precisely because there's a lot of weird people out there, and I used to get <laughs> some exceedingly strange stuff in that way. But um, but you know I can be I can be contacted that way, and. Um, I do I do regular um, open posts and things like that where people can ask questions and, and get answers. So, and you mentioned, of course, we talked about the the book that's coming out next year. Are there any other um, books or things that are on the horizon? That um, let's see, there's lots of stuff. Um, <laughs> I know there's probably of, always many. There's, yeah, well, one of my publishers, um, Llewellyn, um, the very famous neo pagan publisher, mm-hmm. has been letting go some of my stuff recently. So I've had a chance to redo a number of old books and bring them out again from Eon Books, which is an English publisher. Um, So my book, Inside a Magical Lodge, will be out, I think, in February. Um, The Sacred Geometry Oracle, which I'm really hyped about, it's a set of of 33 cards, each one with a symbol from Sacred Geometry. Um, I brought that out some years ago, but I had no control over the artwork, and it was, well, but ugly is a good description. it did not do very well, and so for good reason. And so, but I finally had a chance to reclaim that and get it with a, with a, with a, a new publisher with the books. And so that'll be out in April, and I'm really excited about that because that's a that's a cool oracle. I'll make sure you get a copy of it. Oh, that's and cool. yeah. And then let's see, what else do I have coming out right about now? I'm I'm kind of between fiction projects because I just I finished that that eleven book volume of of Lovecraft stood on its head, eleven book series of Lovecraft stood on its head. And I'm kind of going <laughs> after my long sojourn in, in Tentacleville. But mm-hmm. um, that's most of it at this point. I've got some other things coming out further down the road, but, but that's, you know, that's what's coming out in the near future. I, I think that's plenty, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> I stay busy. You know, I like to write. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm very glad. I think a lot of us are very, very glad of that fact. So, well, thank, so you. thank you for that. Um, and thank you to everyone who submitted some questions. I added some of those lovely questions into to what I asked. And thank you, John, for this, um, JMG, I'm sorry, for this That's fabulous fine. conversation. And I, I can't wait to talk to you about other projects in the future. So thank you. I will look forward to it. And thank you for having me on. It's always a pleasure to be on a good podcast. Oh, thank you for saying that. All right. Good night, everyone. And don't, um, don't get too obsessed with what's going on out there. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> all right. Good night. Good night. As expected, a great chat with the inimitable John Michael Greer. 
We could have gone much further, I'm sure, down the rabbit holes of many of those subjects that we discussed, but I'm particularly glad that we touched on a little the nature of divination itself, as an art that emphasizes relationality and learning to pay attention to the flow and timing of nature. It is really about listening and learning to align yourself in the best possible ways with the forces around you. I agree with JMG that spending time learning and practicing divination is an important balance for our sometimes overly action-oriented ways of being in this modern world. I've included links to JMG's blog, his Dreamwitz page, and a few of his books that we discussed in the interview. And of course, the realm of politics and the occult is certainly in a deeply strange way right now, and I'm sure he and I will hopefully have another interesting conversation about that next year when his The King in Orange book comes out. As always, thank you for listening. Thank you to everyone who joined in live and submitted questions. Please subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts if you enjoy what we're doing here. It really helps. And check out our website at coffeeanddivination.com. You can also find me on Twitter, where I am at Fiddle Angel. Enjoy your journeys with divination, and I'll see you next time. Cause how long, how long, how long was the earth there? How long can we say we belong here?